For those of you who've been with us through our Hebrew series, we've been memorizing a little bit of a key verse. There's a key passage that, that sort of speaks to all of the main themes that we see throughout Hebrews. It summarizes quite well this whole book. So we've been doing a memory verse from Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and that's at the top of those sermon outlines there. Let's go ahead and, uh, and practice our memory verse here today. We'll go through it three times. The phrase we are memorizing today is who... Oh, no, I'm sorry. That was last week. But one who in every respect... But one who in every respect... That's our little portion for today. So let's go ahead and do all of that part, 14 down to what we're memorizing today, but one who in every respect. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect... Well done. That's first time. Number two. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect. Last time. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are. And so we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Unlike the high priests of old who were afar and and not with the people. You didn't get to do what the high priest did. That's one of the main themes here in Hebrews. I'm calling an audible today. Today, uh, we finally get to that Melchizedek guy that uh, you've heard about. I'm calling an audible today, and we're going to divide my original uh, 45-minute sermon into two different weeks, this week and next week. So uh, you can all say, thank you, Scott. Yeah. Uh, if you don't know what an audible is, it's... I'm hearing joking out there, <laughs> mocking and things like that. If you don't know what an audible is, uh, it's when Peyton Manning is at the line, at the football line, and he waves his arms and he yells some unintelligible phrase that, that we non-football people don't understand. And that means he's changing the play. They're at the line of scrimmage and he's changing the play, so I'm calling an audible and uh, we're going to do half and half today. So we'll get halfway through chapter 7 and then the second half we'll do next week. Um, so that we're not here for uh, two hours. And I guess you could call me the Peyton Manning of preaching. No. <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, just to refresh your memories a little bit on the basics of what is going on in this book of Hebrews, I'll repeat the same thing I've been saying for about the last five weeks in a row. It's something like this. In the midst of a congregation experiencing hardship, Hebrews is a sermon that was preached to them to encourage them to continue walking in confidence. Remember our memory verse. It says, let us hold fast our confession. It's to encourage them to continue walking with confidence. The preacher here in Hebrews is providing what we're calling 
an advanced course in the superiority of Jesus and his perfect sacrifice so that they would be encouraged to continue walking with wholehearted devotion, with single-minded, passionate faith for the Christ that we are called to serve and that they were called to follow. So that's where we get our big idea for this whole series. It's on the top of your sermon notes there. It says this, Christ is superior, so follow him with what? Passion. Christ is superior, so follow him with passion. Those of you who get the, uh, the lookout or the Christian standard that we have available during Sunday school every week, the lookout this week, the title of it is, it says this, Passionate Lives in a Who Cares World. Friends, that's what we're called to. We are not called to ho-hum Christianity. We are not called to a pattern of churchianity that makes us feel good. We are called to passionate living in a world that is a so-what-who-cares kind of world. And when we are living lives like that, the Lord is testified to in who we are, by what we do, and by what we say. I love this passage from 2 Timothy. It speaks to this calling we have. This is Paul speaking to his, his younger uh, person he's mentoring, Timothy. He says this in 2 Timothy 1, 7-9. He said, God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. That's what we're called to as believers, sharing in Christ's suffering, making his affliction ours in our lives so that we can testify to God's work in us. Up to this point in Hebrews, we've heard about this Melchizedek guy we're going to talk about today three different times. We've talked about him in 5.6, in 5.10, and in 6.20. And if you've been reading through Hebrews, as we've been challenging you to do each week through this series, you've probably seen this Melchizedek character and thought, who in the world is Melchizedek? Where is he from? What did he do? Why is he here in Hebrews? These are the kinds of questions we're going to answer over the course of the next two weeks here. Because Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He demonstrates that Christ is the great high priest, unlike the high priests of the Old Testament. He is the great, final, once-for-all high priest who accomplishes what no one else could. So Melchizedek points us to that Christ. Before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we're asking for your guidance that you would superintend what happens today through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts. As we dive into your word, we ask for softness of heart, that you would convict us and speak to us, that we would leave this place changed, that we would leave this place with a sense of mission for who we are and who you've called us to be. That in a world that is apathetic and so greatly deceived and that doesn't care that we would be people who live with a sense of purpose and mission 
because you've called us to that task. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Have you ever done something a certain way that you thought was a good way, only to find out there's a much better way? It's that sort of thing, maybe you've been doing something a certain kind of way for years, maybe, only to find out later on, usually from someone much older and wiser, that there's a much better way to do this thing you've been doing. I don't have lots of memories of my grandpa, Bell, on my mom's side, but one memory I have of my grandpa, Bell, that stands out very clearly to me is that probably about the ripe old age of six, my grandpa taught me how to properly wring a towel. Seems silly, but I remember very clearly at the bathtub, he takes his arms, he squeezes it and twists it like this, and I remember as a six-year-old thinking, that is amazing. <laughs> really, I, I, think, I think I was just sort of folding it and like pressing on it and... And it wouldn't, you know, get it very dry. And so my grandpa comes along and he says, no, 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 just twist it. And I remember as a six-year-old thinking, that is awesome. I remember this sense of like, how has somebody not shown me this before? It was like, it was silly. I mean, it's just about wringing towels. But, but it was a revelatory kind of moment for me where I thought, this is life-changing. I mean, it's helpful. <laughs> But wringing a towel incorrectly is, is just one thing, and it's, it's a little bit silly, but, but it's a whole different thing. It's a whole, it's a whole different matter. When the issue is whether or not you worship the Lord, or you participate fully in the body of Christ as He's called you to, then, then, it's a much more important matter. And those are kinds of the stakes that Hebrews is talking about. This isn't whether or not you wring a towel. This is whether or not you participate in who God's called you and me to be in the body of Christ. This is important stuff. In the church where my mom grew up in central Illinois, one of their longest tenured ministers served for a little more than 25 years. He was a well-known preacher. His name was Ernie Laughlin. If you know the name Ernie Laughlin, then you are a real Restoration Movement history nerd. Ernie Laughlin was well-known in just that little part of central Illinois, was a big leader in the Christian churches of that area. And after he retired from ministry, there was one lady in that church who so loved him that apparently when he retired, she retired. Every Sunday morning, for the rest of her years at that church, she would put her chair there and sit in that foyer during the entire service withdrawing from active service in the congregation and participation in worship because she did not like that new regime. So when people came by and asked this woman if she wanted to join them in the service, she would always announce with this sort of snooty flair, Oh, no, I'm a Laughlinite. <laughs> it's so silly, it's funny. But it's also incredibly sad. That lady, that lady was hung up on the wrong person and the wrong system in her personal faith. She refused to move on. 
Remember I was talking about milk, solid food? Today is solid food. Today is it's time to eat some meat, people, because this is not a new problem. We and the Jews in Hebrews get hung up on these kinds of things. We do the same things. We become fixated in, in certain patterns of living and ways of thinking that we miss out on opportunities to take advantage of the blessings of God that are already available to us. We remain, and tell me if you've never thought of this before and experienced this or done this, I have. We remain hung up with a previous pastor or a way to do church or a system with which we are comfortable the Jews who had become Christians were getting hung up on old ways of thinking and refused to move on with the confidence already available to them in Jesus. These Hebrew Christians evidently were still paying too much attention to their Jewish faith in ways that hindered their ability to move on and to trust in the superior hope of Christ. Like the later in the foyer each Sunday in central Illinois, they were Judaites. They weren't even really... Christians following Christ. That doesn't mean that the past was wrong. It doesn't mean that the old system didn't do anything useful for them. It provided a way for the people to have faith in God, certainly. But the problem was that the Jews had turned God's laws to bring them to faith in Him into something that they used to bolster their own selfish ways of thinking. Hebrews is saying, (laughs) I don't know if you heard me clearly yet, you are not. Messianic Jews, you are Christ followers. You are Christians. You have a new name. Hebrews is saying you are not Bob Coxites, Jeff McNabbites, Charles Reesites, Scott Wakefieldites. You certainly don't want to be a Scott Wakefieldite. You are not a follower of a person or any other human or system or way of thinking unless that way of thinking is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So let's dive in, get on your seminary hats, because this is some, this is some straight up old school Bible content today. I want you to go ahead and read uh, with me in Hebrews 7 in just a second, and we'll go back to Genesis as well, but we're going to focus on Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. And in that part of Hebrews, we're introduced to this mysterious Melchizedek. Now, <laughs> if, you were, if you were asked to name the most important people in the Old Testament, Melchizedek would not be near the top of your list. He appeared once in Genesis 14 that we'll go to in just a second. And he was referred to once more in Psalm 110, which we've already had show up a number of times in Hebrews. So you could hardly call this top billing. But the Holy Spirit here in Hebrews reached back into the Old Testament and used those two passages to present an important truth that we are talking about today. If you're taking notes, this is a good one to write down. This is that important truth we're talking about today. The priesthood of Christ is superior to that of Aaron, because Aaron was the first priest of the tribe of Levi. The priesthood of Christ is superior to that of Abraham, to, uh, to superior to that of Aaron, excuse me, because the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Levi. Jesus' priesthood, superior to Aaron's, because Melchizedek's is superior to Aaron's, and Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek. If you're taking notes, that's the main gist for our message this week. So, 
So today we look at Melchizedek, and we discover what he has to do with us moving on in our faith. The part that the Jewish nation was accustomed to, the thing they didn't want to move on from, was this priesthood of the tribe of Levi. That's what they were hung up on. This, this way of doing things like the Levites did. This tribe, the Levites, was chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle. It's referenced in Exodus 29 and in Numbers 18 for the note takers. Exodus 29, Numbers 18. That's where we learn about that tribe being chosen by God to serve in the tabernacle for the Old Testament people. And Aaron was the first high priest. He was appointed by God. Now, in spite of, uh, of their many failures uh, of priests along the years, the priests had served God for centuries. But now the writer has affirmed that their priesthood has ended. Their priesthood, that old priesthood, no longer works. And to defend this, and to prove that the order of Melchizedek is superior to that of Aaron, he presents three main arguments. We're going to go about the, the first one today. There are three main reasons. We're going to look at just the first one today. It's the one we're calling the historical reason. And it's in 7, 1 through 10 here. There's a historical, a doctrinal, and a practical reason why Melchizedek as priest is better than the old priesthood. We'll get to the other two later. But uh, the first one that establishes Melchizedek uh, as superior to the priesthood by showing an example of Abraham. Follow along in 7, 1 to 10 here, if you would, please. We'll read that first part, 7, 1 to 10. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Verse 6. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, Abraham blessed by Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is complicated. And this is how Old Testament writing and thinking was. There are lots of things going on here. We'll just sort of go through the details as we've got them in your sermon outline there. The record, let me give you a little history and background here. The record of this event that Hebrews is referring to is discussed in Genesis 14, 17 to 20. 
So let's take a minute to read that there in Genesis. Genesis 14, 17 to 20. Keep your thumb in Hebrews 7 because we'll come right back to it in just a minute here. This is when Abram, who is not yet named Abraham until Genesis uh, 17, goes back to save his nephew Lot, who chose um, unwisely to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. So it turned out to be a bad move, and uh, he is captured, and Abram goes to rescue him. Here's what it says. Genesis 14. After his, that is Abram's, return from the defeat of Kerdolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is King's Valley. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So turn back to Hebrews 7. The writer of Hebrews here wants us to note several important facts about this mysterious man, Melchizedek. He wants us to note how he demonstrates that Jesus supplanted, fulfilled that old system. Hebrews is saying, you are not Messianic Jews, you are Christians. These uh, many points are, are detailed in your sermon outlines there, and we'll fill in a few of those blanks as we go. First... Melchizedek is an example because he was both king and priest. That's that first couple blanks there. In verse 1, it tells us about how he was both king and priest. This is part of the historical reason because it tells us that he was both of these offices. He held both positions. Now, that's an unusual circumstance in Hebrew history. It's important here to note that in the Old Testament economy, the throne of the king and the altar of the priest were kept separate, and they were attended to by different men. So Aaron, the first priest from the tribe of Levi, never had the privilege of serving as king. But here is a man who served both functions even in the Old Testament as king and as priest. And so it's important to note that Melchizedek was not a counterfeit priest. He was, as it says there, priest of the Most High God. He was a legitimate king and priest in every way. And that's a type of Christ for us. It shows us what the Messiah is going to be like later on. Second reason is that his name is significant. This is in 2B there, that second half of verse 2. Where it says, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. His name means righteousness and peace. And when it says king of Salem, it's, it's, it's referring to what is probably Jerusalem, king of Jerusalem at the time. So, in Judaism, in Judaism that, that, that second blank is named there, by the way, verse 2b, his name is significant. For the, for the Jews... People had names that meant something. My parents named my brother David because it means beloved of God. They named me Scott because it name means beloved of coffee. 
sad, sad. Nowadays, we don't always name people for what the word means, but in the Bible, a name means something. So Melchizedek meant king of righteousness in Hebrew. And that word Salem, where Melchizedek was priest and king, it means peace. So he was king of both righteousness and peace, just as Jesus was king of righteousness and peace. Those kinds of names are used for him throughout Scripture. Prince of Peace. King of Kings. And so those two names in Melchizedek, who was, uh, brings us back to Christ, who was for all time King of Righteousness and Peace. James 3 talks about that. So moving on in the faith of those Hebrew Christians meant recognizing, even in their own history, that their superior high priest, who didn't fit the mold of what a high priest was like, was given additional legitimacy, even by his own name. The third reason, and this is uh, the first half of two there, is that he received tithes from Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham. Tithing was uh, the practice of giving a tenth of all that a person possessed for the work of the kingdom of God. And while it began in Judaism, it's, by the way, still an appropriate starting point, starting point for Christians giving. But the question here is a matter of Old Testament law. Who received the tithe is the question. Now, in Levitical law, in, in, that, in that priestly Old Testament law, the law of the Jewish people, the Levites received the tithe. So Tommy and I and Kim are hoping that you will continue to... No, I'm just kidding. We're not asking you to make 10% happen for us. In the case of Melchizedek, who wasn't a priest from the order of Levi, he wasn't even in that right order. He was receiving a tithe from Abraham. So that's the significance here. This is another major departure from the way that these Hebrew Christians we're thinking about how it should be done. That's not how we do this. That's not how that was done. Another surprise from God and another departure from what these Hebrew Christians thought was the system of their faith. The next reason, this is in verse 3 there. He is, his family history is actually different than the, tri- the tribe of Levi. This is a significant point. Verse 3 there says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Melchizedek's family history was different from the usual Jewish policy about a high priest. In contrast to those Levitical priests of old whose genealogies were recorded, there is no record of his parents, no record of his birth, no record of his death. You see, the Levites, the Israelite people who were charged with being priests, they had to prove that they were Levites in order to hold the office of priests. They had to prove they had a genealogy that was a Jewish genealogy. They had to prove that they were from around here. But Melchizedek had no such ancestry. As far as the scriptural record concerned, he had no ancestry that they could point to. So he was not like they were used to with priests. So in this way, he's also like Christ 
in that he was begotten. In a sense, he was not created. In a sense, he lives forever. At least the Jews thought, in Melchizedek's case, that someone who did not have a genealogy must not have a mother or father. Now, of course, Melchizedek, he was a real person. He had a mother, a father. But in Scripture, as far as its record is concerned, he was not born, nor did he die. So in this way, he's a picture from the Old Testament of Jesus' life and his work in the New Testament. And, and, and this is evidence, Hebrews is saying, that God was, continued to do, God was doing this new thing. The new thing was that Calvary is not the end for Christ. He arose from the dead and today lives on, Hebrews 7.16, because of the power of an endless life, as it says there. The application here is clear that neither Aaron nor any of these Levitical priestly descendants could claim to be without genealogy. They could not claim to have an endless ministry. They could not claim to be kings and priests like Melchizedek who was a type of Jesus. Finally, this last thing that's pointed out here for us is in verses 4 through 10. It's that he had authority. Melchizedek had authority to receive tithes and to bless Abraham. We talked about that a little bit before. The final reason that Melchizedek shows that the Hebrew Christians needed to move beyond their Jewish faith is that he even received a tithe, which is an expression of worship to God from Abraham, the father of all those other priests. This, this was significant. Abraham was considered the patriarch, the father of all these priests, and this guy Melchizedek was receiving tithes from that. Only... Only living by the Jewish law did not take them where they needed to go. And Hebrews is saying to us here that we are people who are so used sometimes to making priests out of things that don't deserve to be made priests. That it hinders us. It slows us down. It stops us from moving on into deeper faith with Christ. Friends, we all have idols that we can name and that we don't even know about that have become for us these mediators of how we think about our relationship with God. They become false idols. And these Hebrew Christians, like many of us, were still thinking about the the ways of doing relationship with God that they had been taught for so long. That Christ came and said, listen, listen, I come to bring freedom. I am peace. So the message for us is clear, friends. In the middle of of a world that is busy and doesn't care and has a hundred responsibilities, many of you come to the table here today with item after item after item on your to-do list that you will never, ever get to. And it weighs on you, if you're anything at all like me. We live in a world that needs peace and freedom. We have lives that need that. And if we would just continue to learn to live in that kind of freedom and peace that he's offered to us, it's already available to us. It's already happened on the cross. You don't need to keep doing it. You can't keep doing it. 
And when we make people and jobs and relationships the priestly mediators for how we operate with God, we've messed up that order. Friends, we want to be the kind of place where, here at First Christian, the body of Christ functions in a way so that we keep the priest where he's supposed to be. The great high priest is in heaven even now, making intercession for you and for me. The end of that chapter there, chapter 7, Verse 25 says, He, this is referring to Jesus, He is able to save to the other most those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Still living. Always living. What happened on the cross didn't just happen and it's over. That sacrifice was once, but the effects of that atonement by which he gives us relationship continue. And his perfection is still happening right here, right now, for us. Giving us access to relationship with him. In a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song of what we call Song of Invitation. It's a time for you to respond to the gospel message of that peace made available to us on the cross. So as we stand to sing in just a moment, if you're looking for a church home as a baptized believer, we'd like to invite you. And if you're looking to come and make a public declaration of your faith in Christ in the waters of baptism,